Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that the incense that rises from us as your people is the aroma of Christ. And that you delight in us, you love us, you enjoy us, and when you smell us, you spell your son, the Lord Jesus, because of your grace and because of your mercy, because of his obedience and because his death and resurrection, we thank you so much that you delight in us. Father, we also recognize that that aroma is a fragrance of life for many people in this world. But Father, we also recognize that that aroma is a stench of death for many also. And we echo the Apostle Paul when he says, who then as your people are fit for these things? We thank you that you make us fit in your son, the Lord Jesus, to be those in whom you make your appeal to the world through. We thank you that you love us, accept of our praise, accept of our worship, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, what I've just prayed is not just making reference to 2 Corinthians. What I've just prayed is reality for every single one of us. For those of us who are in Christ, He looks at us, and the Father looks at us, and when He smells us, He smells His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's a delight, a fragrant offering to Him, but the reality is this. The reality is this. That aroma is fragrance of life for many, but it's also the stench of death for others. I don't know about you if you've been at a dinner party or if you've spent time with friends who aren't Christians and you've been there at the dinner party and then somebody has shared something or a comment or a, an ideology regarding just life in any way and it is totally, totally contrary to what it is to be a Christian. But this person's a non-believer and everybody around the table is a non-believer and then suddenly everybody starts to nod in agreement and you're on your own. You've been there? When you realize that you are in the minority because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, in that moment, I don't know about you, you feel ostracized from the conversation. You feel pushed to the margins of the table. See, what we experience in those moments, and folks, as somebody that comes from Europe, moments that happen daily. It's easy for us to get into a situation where we think, this has never happened before, but what we have in front of us is a text, is a letter from the Apostle Peter who is writing to churches who are experiencing something very similar. They're experiencing a persecution. They're being pushed to the margins of, of society. And Peter tells us in his letter the reason for this. And by looking at that, we can also say the reason for why it happens to us today as we, as God's people, seek to reach our friends and our family and our city and our nation and our world with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, why is this happening? And chapter 2, verse 4 tells us it is happening because the one 
in whom we build our lives upon is rejected by men. The one in whom us, who are living stones, living stones who are being built up into a temple, Peter tells us, where the presence of God is seen and known and, and displayed to the world, is built upon Jesus, the cornerstone, who is rejected by men and women. The cornerstone in whom we believe, and as a result, we will not be put to shame, is rejected by the people in our communities, the people in our cities, the people in our world, and to the majority of people in my culture, and I believe increasingly so in yours today, see Jesus as a rock of offense. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the gospel is a stumbling block to the culture's ideologies of what it is to be human, what it is to engage in relationships, what worth is, what success is, what truth is, what self is. The message of the gospel brings offense, chapter 2, verse 8, because it poses questions regarding control, regarding truth, regarding morality, regarding eternity that have to be answered. And it's an offense because the gospel exposes weakness. It exposes pride. It exposes emptiness. It exposes hopelessness. It exposes fear. And folks, we live in a culture that does everything that it can to dumb down or drown out the existential questions of life, of death, of God, of truth, of satisfaction, of joy. The world doesn't want to hear it. The world doesn't want to deal with it. So those of us who have been called to be the people of God and to proclaim the good news of Jesus feel like we are being pushed further to the margins of society, branded as archaic, bigoted. There's people that don't fit, the people that don't belong. There's people who are aliens and strangers in this world. But if you've read through 1 Peter, and I, can I encourage you this afternoon, read the whole letter. If you read through 1 Peter, you see that the theme is not one of encouragement to hide. It's not one uh, to, to protect ourselves. It's not a theme of creating holy huddles or a cozy Christian subculture. No. See, Peter reminds these churches that he is writing to of who they are and what they have, they have been called to be by God and what their purpose is and their purpose. And as we read this through the power of the Spirit, our purpose as his people is for us to be the means by which the excellencies of God is proclaimed to the world for the sake of the lost people outside of Jesus Christ. Folks, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of pushback, God's people are to live in a way that leads people to Christ. See, at the core of what it is to be a Christian, at the core of what it is to be the church, God draws a people to himself to display his glory to and then to display his glory through to the world. At the core of who we are as Christians is to be people who proclaim the excellencies of God. The people who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And not only proclaim that, but to live that. As you look through 1 Peter, you'll see that actually his whole purpose of writing this book is so that they are able to engage with family members and friends in the reality of the hostility that they find themselves 
in. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable so that people can come to know the Lord Jesus. In chapter 3, was talking to wives in terms of their wisdom, wisdom of what it looks like to live with a non-believing husband. They do it in such a way, obeying the word, that their husbands may be won without a word because of the conduct of their wives. It's an issue of action, the way we live. It's an issue of wisdom and winsomeness. And it's also an issue of having answers. Chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Folks, Peter is reminding them of who they are, what God has called them to, which remains constant, whatever the cultural tone, whatever the cultural temperature. So very quickly, I want to look at three things from these two verses that we've had read from us. I want us to see first that we need to know the reality of who we are if we're going to reach people with the gospel. We're going to see secondly that we, want, we need to know the reality of where we are. And we need to know finally the reality of who we are reaching. Number one, knowing the reality of who we are. See, Peter's writing to confused, discouraged Christians living in a hostile world who are being pushed back to the margins because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, even though Jesus is being rejected, remember who you are. Verse 9, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen generation. Folks, this truth that the people of Israel are God's chosen people is grounded in the whole story of redemption, the whole story of the Old Testament. For those who know your Bibles, you'll know that Abraham, God chose Abraham. It wasn't that Abraham chose God, and God made promises to Abraham that through him, he will draw a people to himself and be a blessing to the world. As you read through the Old Testament, you see that God loves the Israelites, not because they are mighty or powerful, because they are wiser or holier, but simply because he set his affection on them. Amen? That's why he loves you. Because before the foundation of the world, he set his affection upon you. They are a chosen people. And Peter applies this language directly to these Christians. And Peter is reminding them that God had set his affections on them before the foundation of the world. And the contrast to who they once were and who they are now could not be any more different. Do you see that, verse 10? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you look at the beginning of the letter, he begins it with this beautiful introduction that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is in chapter 1. That according to his mercy, his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Folks, I've been at my children's birth, all four of them, okay? I can tell you this, my kids had nothing to do with them coming into the world. <laughs> I had a little bit to do with it, but they had nothing to do with it. <laughs> nothing. And that's the same for you. And that is true for us. We have been born again according to the great mercy and through the, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all on him. How gracious is that? How merciful is that? How loving is that? We've been born again. And we've been born again to a living hope. That what is to come is something that is far greater than what we are experiencing now. And Tony prayed it before, every tear will be wiped, or death will be no more. Amen? 
That is the living hope that God keeps for us, an inheritance that he guards to ensure that we are there. We are, folks. This is so important. A chosen race, a chosen people. We're God's people. It says there, verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. See, the role of the priest was to represent God to the people and the people to God through sacrifice and mediation. But the, 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 the role of a priest was a specific role that was given to those who were from the tribe of Levi, descendants of the line of Aaron. But what Peter is referring to here, he's, re, he's reminded them of what God said to God's people in Exodus 19 after he brought them out of Egypt and he said to them, if you obey my voice and keep my commandments, you'll be my treasured possession amongst all people for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. See, God tells all the people that they have a priestly role as his people in the midst of the world. See, part of living for God is that we as Christian people are to execute priestly duties. That God's people, in their obedience to the word, are to live in a way that represent God to the world. Represent God to the nations. To minister and to mediate his grace to the world. It was the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, when he talks about evangelizing to the Gentiles, he says that he has discharged his priestly duty. Christians are priests, not because we have some peculiar clerical role, but because together we are all the church of God and we mediate the grace of God in how we live one with another, how we respond to the word, and this is what evangelism is about, folks. And we mediate because we pray for those who are outside. That God would open the eyes of people. The Spirit of God would convict them of their sin and that they may repent and turn and trust in the living God. This is what it means for us as God's people to be a kingdom of priests. He reminds them that they are, verse 9, a holy nation. It reminds them they are elect exiles in the dispersion. They've been born again to a living hope of the resurrection of the dead. So what Peter says in verse 13 of chapter 1, so in light of all that truth, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Don't be conformed to the passions of the former ignorance, he says in verses 15 and 16, but be holy, be set apart. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, conduct yourselves as those who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ and live according to the living word that will remain forever. Verses 22 to 25 of chapter I wish I could spend more time, but I just do not have it shown now. Folks, we are a chosen race. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation and we are owned by God. Verse 9, a people for his own possession. We are his treasured possession. In Exodus 19, he says to God's people, all the world is mine, but you're my treasured possession. You know the treasured possession that you hold on to? Do you want to know what mine is at this moment in time? After my Bible, my passport. I want to know what that is all the time. <laughs> treasured. We are his treasured possession. We have a special status all of our corporate identities, the people of God, the church of the living God, is not to promote our pride. Or to think that we are more superior than anyone else, rather is that we might declare the excellencies of him to our friends, to our neighbors, to our colleagues, 
and to our families. Folks, Imago Day, that's who we are. That's who we are. We need to know the reality of who we are as we enter into the world. Number two, we need to know the reality of where we are. Folks, we need to have our eyes open and be sensitive to this land that we are passing through because verse 11 of chapter two, we're sojourners, we're exiles. This is not our home, our home is to come and we are passing through. Now as an Englishman in North Carolina, I am very sensitive culturally to things that are going on. Why? Because this is not my home. This is not my home. My home is paradise. No, this is not my home. (laughs) And if we are serious about proclaiming the excellencies uh, of, of the Lord, as is people, we have to be sensitive and have our eyes open to the, the fact that we live in a broken world. Peter says it in verse six of one. He says, you rejoice in this living hope, but you experience the trials of a broken world. That's our reality. We need to know where we are. We need to know that the people who are even sitting next to us or walking in the streets with us or are in the mall with us or our neighbors and our family, they are broken people. We can get so caught up, can't we? in our own business, in our own situation, in our own ministries, that we have our eyes closed to the reality of where we are. And Peter is encouraging the church to say, open your eyes. Open your eyes to the reality. He unpacks the rest of the letter. Figure out what that looks like to serve the community, to serve in the context of family, to serve in the context of, of leadership. What does that mean? What does that look like? Have your eyes open. Folks, we have to recognize we live in a broken world with broken people. We have to also recognize that this is not our home, that this is not the end, but the end is very long. Life is short, death is certain, eternity is for a long, long time. We need to have a sense of urgency. If you're not a Christian here today, I implore you with a sense of urgency. Please speak to the people who have brought you. Please talk to somebody regarding the truth of who Jesus is because without him you will face the judgment of God for an eternity but in him you will enjoy the graciousness and the wonder of who he is in and through what he has done for you in Christ. Folks, our friends and our neighbors need to know that. We need to open our eyes to the agency and we need to know where God has us. I'm 44 years of age in a couple of weeks' time. I still think that I can function like I'm 21. Anyone that's middle-aged gets that. You know what's right? right? I'm praying for the day when I come to realize. But I need to realize that God has me at a place at a time, in a role, in a family, in a street, in a community, in a city, for a purpose. I used to be a police officer, I've said before. And for years, I used to go and spend um, Friday night serving in the kids' ministry in the church, which is wonderful, by the way, and I enjoyed it, I did it for years, but I was the only police officer who was a Christian in my station, and every Friday, they'd all want to go out for drinks with their partners and with, with their wives, and they'd always ask me, and I would always say to them, look, I can't, I can't come, I can't come along because I'm serving in church, and I thought that was a witness to them. What that was to them, Steve doesn't want to be with us. Six years, what, what, what a waste. Other people could have served the children. I'm thankful for that, but I just wish I'd have spent the time and recognized that God had me there for a purpose. Had me there for a purpose. Folks, we need to know the reality of where we are in terms of as we lift our heads, but also then the response of that. As God's people proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we need to hold on to 
to the, the things that being God's people affect us. We're given a faith, we're given hope, we're given joy, we're called to be holy. And folks, these are the postures of Christian hearts that I actually think are infectious in our community with people who don't know him. Folks, firstly, it's this. We need to hold on to the faith of the truth of the gospel that comes from the word of God. That's what Peter's trying to do here. This word that I preach to you, this word that has transformed you, hold on to that. Folks, we are moving from a culture of inner anxiety to anxiety that is external and cultural. Amen? It's out there. And this anxiety is a cause of fear. And that triggers things. And then it becomes ramp-offs from faith and leads to error. We need to be driven by faith in the promises of God, not by fear. We need to trust in his word. We need to hold fact to his word. We need to see the authority of his word in the midst of a world that is saying, this is baloney. We need to view the culture as God's people through the lens of the word, not view the word through the lens of our culture. And folks, as we live as that, that is infectious to people. We need to have the posture of heart, uh, heart of this hope. There is so much overwhelming feeling of despair in our world at the moment. There is sin, there is brokenness, it's everywhere. And I want to guarantee you this, living with hope in Jesus, yes, is countercultural, but it is stubbornly infectious. I heard a story of a man called Mr. Clark. He was in hospital, a Christian man. He was riddled with cancer, dying. But he loved the Lord, and every opportunity he would share the gospel with somebody who would come in, any of the nurses. And there was a nurse that came and saved Mr. Clark for the first time, for the first time um, as part of her duties. And she went in and he was sharing the gospel, he was singing, he had his music playing, and she was looking after him. And then she came out, dying with cancer. She wrote on his notes, Mr. Clark today is inappropriately joyful. <laughs> That's the response of Christian people. In the midst of the brokenness and the trials, we are to be inappropriately joyful because we have hope in Jesus. And that joy is not about earthly circumstances like happiness, but is a heavenly spiritual reality. He says, verse six of chapter one, even though you face trials, you rejoice in who you are in him. Folks, these postures of faith and joy and, 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 and hope and living lives of holiness, keeping our conduct honorable, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which I think is self-interest, is infectious in the world that we live in. We need to know where we are, what is going on, and we need to have hearts that flow from the truth of who we are in the gospel that display these wonderful, beautiful things to the world. And number three, as I close, we need to know the reality of who we are reaching. We need to know the reality of who we are reaching, and if you don't mind, I'm going to share a few Ps with you. The first one is this. We need to be present. Peter says, doesn't he, verse 15 of chapter 3, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. There is an assumption that they are living as the church, as believers, amongst non-Christians. There's an assumption you're living in such a way that people are gonna look in and go, there's something about you. So can I encourage you, be present with non-believers. 
Love non-believers. Have non-believers in your home, at your table, please. I was chatting to brothers and sisters last night in Tony and Kimberly's house, it was wonderful, and they asked me the question, they said, is the United States 15 to 20 years behind Europe? I think because of COVID and the world becoming smaller because of social media, I think you guys are five to 10 years behind Europe. Where the majority of people who live in your street have no context of what it is to understand Jesus. We have to be present amongst non-believers. Folks, evangelism is not about the silver bullet or the course. It's about Christian people living out the truth of who they are in the midst of those who don't know him. Together. Be present. Be, be persistent. Be persistent. The guy who cuts my hair has cut my hair since I was 16 years of age and he was 18 years of age. For, so for about 10 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> For nearly 30 years. He's not a Christian, and I have sat with him. He knows everything about my life. I know everything about his life. And I've sat talking to him through a mirror. He's standing behind me. We went for coffee once, face to face, very strange. So, <laughs> and my wife w wishes that I would go to a different barber, not because she doesn't like the cup, because it's very expensive. But why am I persistent? I'm persistent because I'm the only Christian that he knows. And I get to talk to him for a good half an hour, regularly, too regularly. <laughs> Folks, there are people in your communities, be persistent, please. Family members, be persistent. My wife's father is not a Christian, but we are persistent in our prayer for him. In living out the truth of the gospel in front of him, including that in, be persistent. Be patient. Sean was a teacher for 21 years, she finished this year. She was the only Christian in her school, and she was praying for her friends regularly in the school. We were praying and praying and praying. And one of her friends, her name was Nikki, and Nikki had a real issue with the fact that God allowed suffering, especially with children, and it was always a stumbling block in any conversation. When it came up, it sort of ended it in sort of like a sour note. And then when she was seven, our eldest daughter, Ella, was diagnosed with an astrocytoma, which is a brain tumor in her spinal cord. And when Sean shared that with her friends at work, she just thought, that is it, the door is shut, the coffin is closed, the nail is in, Nikki is not going to respond. Look, you are a Christian, your God has allowed that to happen. But Sean lived with a posture of heart, of joy and hope, knowing in who she was, seeing that walking through this trial and this suffering was what it meant to proclaim the excellencies of God as his people, actually ministering grace in that moment that had a profound effect on Nikki. Nikki's nephew then got cancer. And we thought, oh no. But where did Nikki turn? She turned to Sean. How do you deal with this? Will you pray? And last summer, Sean baptized Nikki, praise the Lord. <laughs> Folks, be patient. Be prepared. Be prepared to give an answer. Be prepared at the dinner table when you're the only one that doesn't agree to engage in gentleness. Put yourself in those positions. Understand what it is to live according to the word. Be prepared. And be prepared because God often will give you those opportunities in the moments when you do not want them. <laughs> it's right. My daughter's got a lot of problems. She's disabled, lots and lots of issues. Her name's Ella. Please pray for her. 
and she was having a, meant to be having a major operation, and this operation that she was going to be having was, was um, they were going to basically break her legs and rebuild her, and, and she was all marked up, ready to go into the operating theatre, and they cancelled the operation. Okay, it's the downside to the NHS. They, 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 they cancelled the operation. And then they said, we will do it again in four weeks' time. Our world was rocked. It was totally rocked. We thought all, all, all God's will had aligned in this moment. It felt perfect. We, what's going on? And then for four weeks, I was just like, I was a bit of a mess. Uh, they gave me time off work, and I walked the dog every day. In, at the same time, in the same park. And then I met one of my neighbors that lives over the road that had just moved in recently. I hadn't got a chance to speak with him because of the issues that were going on with Ella. And we just walked the dog every day. Every single day, he asked me what I did. I shared about the truth of the gospel. Just the, the one that I shared about the Ella situation. Anyway, long story short, Freddie, after two weeks, sends his partner, who he's not married to, and his daughter to church because he couldn't make it. She ends up coming to our house for dinner on the Sunday. Blown away, the people that you don't know are invited, invited into the home with other people that other people didn't know, but they all had this thing in common, which was Jesus. On the Friday, Freddie turns up at my house. Now, Friday night is date night in our house, okay? And, I, and nothing gets in the way, right? So at seven o'clock, Freddie knocks on the door with his family saying, I just thought I'd come round to say thank you for having the family over. He comes in, last thing I wanted to do was talk to Freddie. <laughs> Freddie come in, broke down, shared about his anxiety, said, you've been talking about this Jesus to me as we walk in the dark. There's something in him, tell me about him. We shared it, Freddie came to know the Lord Jesus. Folks, I did not want to talk to him. <laughs> but God did. Yeah. Let us be prepared. It will be painful. But most importantly, folks, let's pray. It is God that saves. It's Jesus who does the work. It is his sovereign work. He gives living water. He sets the captive free. He opens up the eyes of the blind the ears of the deaf. He calls us out of darkness. He's the one who says, you are now my people. He is the one that bestows mercy upon broken, busted up people like you and me. And folks, when we talk about evangelism and reaching neighbors, when we think of who we are and the, the wonderful privilege that we have to proclaim the excellencies, we often can fall into the trap of, and, and fall into a point where we are like, I am failing. And guilt starts to trip, come in. Folks, I want to tell you this. We have no reason to feel like we are failing because he is pleased with us because we are the aroma of Christ to God. Amen? Amen. Now, in the midst of maybe conviction, let's walk together. Let's encourage each other. Let's love the neighbor that is un unlovable. Let's be prepared, present, persistent. Let us remember who we are. Let's remember where we are. And let's proclaim the good news of Jesus, knowing that his word will not return void and our labor is not in vain. As I close, let me tell you one story of an old man in our church. I had the privilege of revitalizing a church, a brethren assembly in 2009. And one of the elders, Ron Martin, was 89 years of age when we, when we, we, we um, um, went to the church. And Ron um, died at 96. But he called me one day when he was 94. He said, Steve, will you come round? I need you to see something. And he'd received a letter from a man named Tony. Now, Tony 
had been at a Billy Graham crusade in 1984 at Liverpool Football Club Stadium in Anfield. And Ron Martin was one of the councillors. And when Billy, uh, Mr. Graham got up and I had to say Mr. Green because I don't know if any of the family here. It's North Carolina, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> and when Billy made the appeal, this guy stood up and walked the opposite way. Ron stopped him and said, are you okay? Sir? He goes, this is not for me. And Ron said, to him, can I just chat with you? Can I unpack that for you a little bit more? I said, no, I appreciate this guy's not from around here, but maybe I can help you in that. He sat down with this guy called Tony, he unpacked the gospel. He gave him a slip with his address on. And that was the last Ron Martin sort of Tony. 25 years later, he received a letter from Tony. Mr. Martin, I hope you live at this address. I want you to know that after you stopped me, I went home, I got on my knees, and I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. My wife became a Christian, my children are now Christians, and my grandchildren are now all Christians. Thank you. Folks, be encouraged in the midst of praying for our family. We are God's people, proclaiming His excellencies to the world, and our labor is not in vain, because that's what He has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You and praise You for Your goodness and Your kindness to us. We thank You so much that You've chosen us, that You've given us this unbelievable responsibility to share the goodness of Jesus to the world. We thank You, Lord that you set us apart and through your spirit you've enabled us to live holy lives and we thank you that you own us. Help us by your spirit to proclaim the excellencies in the everyday of our lives. And Father, for all the family members and neighbors and friends and children and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers that we've all thought about in the last 30 minutes, we ask, that you will save them for your glory.